Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. And again, hope you are safe and well. Coming up on our program today, more reaction to the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program and hopefully some answers to some questions you may have about it. Later, we'll talk with USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey, and he'll explain the formula used for payments, the timing on the payments, will more commodities be added later, lots of questions. We'll get answers from Bill Northey a little bit later on in the program. Also, reaction to the uh, CFAP program. From Dr. Barb Glenn, CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, and also kind of get a lay of the land, a feel for things across the country in various states as far as the uh, the need out there for agriculture and how how agriculture in various states handling COVID-19. There are some concerns in the wheat industry about uh, the CFAP program, and we will talk with the CEO of the National Association of Wheat growers Chandler Gould a little bit later on and hear about those concerns and uh, more reaction to the program. So we have a lot of ground to cover on our program today. Let's start it off by checking in with the dairy industry. Joining us now is Paul Bleiberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, good to talk with you again. Uh, What's the dairy industry's uh, reaction, response to the CFAP announcement? What's in there for dairy and what do you like about it? Well, thanks, Mike, for having me on, and I think we are we are glad to see the announcement, and it will provide much needed help to producers right now, as folks have endured several months of uh, of difficulty here. And what's in the package essentially is a a direct payment for dairy producers that will be based on two different calculations, uh, both relating to quarter one production, but the second calculation will have a factor increase to account for some additional production in quarter two. And they will look at, you know, losses in quarter one and taken together, it'll be, you know, we think the rough collective payment rate will be a little bit over $6 a hundred, but I think it'll be 620 or 618 a hundred. I can't remember the exact math off the top of my head, but something to that effect. And we think that'll be helpful relief. A major issue that we had pushed on um, during the process was the payment limitation issue to make sure that farmers of all sizes were protected and able to get coverage on, on the milk they produce. And obviously, given that this you know, pandemic is impacting farmers of all sizes, that was very important. In the final outcome, they, they maintained the $250,000 per entity limit, but they did remove the $125,000 um, per commodity limit within that. So that provides a bit of flexibility. But then additionally, there's a setup where depending on how the producer is structured, if you're structured as a corporation or an LLC or couple of different things. If you have multiple shareholders that actively contribute a certain amount of labor and management to the business, there will be the ability for some operations to get up to 750 or up to 500. So some additional relief there. I think we've been talking to our members to get a sense for how many different operations around the country will be able to benefit from that. And so those are some of the, those are some of the provisions off the bat in this package. So you still have the payment limits. Um, also, they're saying 80% of the uh, Money will go out initially, the other 20%, depending on if there's enough money left to do it. Right. That's what we've heard. 
And I think that does go to underscore the need for additional aid. And I think that's what we pointed out in our own statement the other day when the package was finalized on Tuesday morning. This is welcome relief, but we do think additional help is going to be necessary. And as I noted, you know, the aid in this package is really based around quarter one losses. In the dairy sector in particular, the losses were much worse in quarter two than in quarter one. And so as we go down into the next round of legislation in Congress, you know, the House already passed the HEROES Act last week that has a direct payment uh, for producers, including dairy, that would pay on 85% of quarter two losses, which is very valuable, and that'll be very helpful. You know, the Senate will be doing their work in the coming weeks here. I think we're going to be continuing to push for more aid because we do want to really reflect that loss that producers have faced, and it's over a period of time. It's quarter one, but it's also quarter two, and quarter two, I think we expect to be, by all accounts, more significant. And so getting another round of payments, you know, through additional funding from Congress that's based on those quarter two losses will be very important. We're talking with Paul Bleiberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. It was also announced yesterday that the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Farm Service Agency announcing that uh, the March 2020 income over feed cost margin was $9.15 per hundredweight, triggering the first payment of 2020 for dairy producers who purchased the uh, appropriate level of coverage under the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. So this will be the uh, first triggered DMC payment for 2020. That's absolutely right. We saw that as well, and I think it's a a helpful reminder of the importance of a program like this doing its job during a difficult period like this. I know the futures at the end of 2019 didn't necessarily show that there would be payments, but here we are, and uh, you know this is the program working as intended, and I think as we work very hard with Congress to get a good program. What are you seeing and hearing around the country from dairy producers, Paul, as they're dealing with COVID-19? Obviously, the assistance helps, but where are, where are they and where, where is the industry overall right now, you think? Well, I, you know, I think overall people are still people are still nervous. I think people are still feeling difficulty on their farms. Obviously, you know, while there's been somewhat of a reopening in different states, obviously that has to occur very gradually to balance the economy with health and safety, you know, concerns. And so it's not like you can flip a switch and everything goes back to the way it was before all at once. And so it is an incremental process. I think while that is going on, obviously there have been some increases in orders in the food service sectors, restaurants, and other entities gradually do reopen, and so that will have some impact, but that's going to take place over a period of time, understandably, and so I think there's still a lot of concern out there, you know, across the country about what the next several months will hold, and we have a lot of producers that, you know, as we've talked about in past conversations, had five difficult years in a row of low milk prices, and for this to happen on the heels of that was just unthinkable in a lot of ways, and so it does underscore the need for further assistance. And yeah, that's what we're going to be continuing to push for as the, the House and Senate, you know, negotiate a final, you know, next round, hopefully as soon as possible here. Um, but I, I think that's the, the, the mood. I think dairy producers are always optimists. You talk to any of them, they're always hopeful. And I think people are trying to be hopeful with what they are seeing as the gradual um, reopenings in some cases and the hopeful recovery as we move forward. But there's still a lot of concern. All right, Paul, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Thanks for having me on. All right. Paul Bleiberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. So still a lot of questions, though, about uh, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. How did they come up with the formula that they came up with? Who's eligible? How do you sign up? When will the money get to you? Things like that. We'll be asking those questions a little bit later of USDA 
Undersecretary Bill Northing. We'll go through as much of that as we possibly can. Certainly a lot of questions. Why were uh, some commodities left out? Will they be able to be added in later? Uh, what about the you know the, the payment limits? Those questions. We'll get into all that with Bill Northing a little bit later. Coming up next, though, we're going to hear from the CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. Get their response to the CFAP program announcement and also what the is being seen across the country state by state we see a lot of the news about uh, different states reopening and how they're handling COVID-19 what about from an agricultural standpoint state to state we'll take a look around the country that's coming up next stay with us you're listening to AOA farmers can't choose the weather trade policy or market prices but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We continue to get reaction to the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Joining us now is the CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, Dr. Barb Glenn. Dr. Glenn, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. Great to be here. Um, Your initial reaction to CFAP. Well, we were really pleased that USDA was able to roll out the implementation plan for CFAP. Our uh, farmers and ranchers need that funding. We need to uh, get it to those commodities that that are on the list, and we need to expand perhaps to those commodities that weren't. But we look forward to, you know, being the go-between as the commissioners, secretaries, and directors of agriculture to assist in implementation of that program. Of course, it's $16 billion in, in payments. There's also $3 billion in uh, the purchase of, of commodities for uh, getting those out to food banks and uh, food pantries, uh, different feeding programs, things like that. Uh, any concerns? We've heard mixed reactions on that, about questions about some of the companies chosen to, to facilitate that, but we've also heard uh, some good examples or some good experiences of it working well. What are you hearing? Well, I think state departments of agriculture are just concerned about getting food to hungry people, and so our members have been working diligently to stand up their own food box programs, if you will, in their states with their partners. So we do, we think the USDA Farmers to Families program is an excellent um, investment in, in moving food to where it needs to go. Uh, the companies or the distributors that were selected to participate in the program, I think, uh, they have a specific goals and objectives they're trying to meet and, and move those food boxes. So I think it's a net huge positive for American agriculture and also for our, our hungry consumers. 
We're talking with Dr. Barb Glenn, CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. Dr. Glenn, uh, a lot of times on the news we'll see uh, how things are different state to state as far as their reopening, as far as COVID cases or whatever. Can you break it down for us a little bit from an agricultural standpoint? What are you hearing from around the country about uh, different areas of concern state to state? What are some of the, uh, uh, the biggest concerns you're hearing from an agricultural standpoint? Well, um, obviously, COVID-19 has placed unprecedented strain on our food system. And so among our members, who are indeed the chief ag negotiators in their state, they have had to be responsive. They've had to be nimble and flexible. And and that's exactly what has happened. They've been uniquely placed to, to solve a lot of issues. So although every state can be different and regions are different in terms of the crops we grow and the livestock we grow, there's a there's unity in terms of uh, response to this virus. So our members have been very involved, as I mentioned, in, in forming new partnerships to to move food, um, to form uh, matchmaking programs, to make sure everyone knows where their local locally grown foods are, to open farmers markets and CSAs, to provide uh, farmers assistance with uh, even rural stress and that they're enduring right now. And also, you know, down to standing up programs to identify new Wi-Fi opportunities and broadband opportunities. So although there's differences, Mike, across America, U.S. agriculture is, you know, really enduring this strain together. Farmers are still farming, food workers still working. And so our members are are the go-between. They know how to work with their agricultural community. We talk a lot about the meat packing situation. Obviously, uh, the the issue for livestock producers has been continues to be critical, as many of them not having a place to go with their animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that food supply was strong, and then we started to to identify these vulnerabilities, and that certainly was one that jumped out. So our state departments have focused on two things, Mike. We've got to ensure those food workers are safe. But we have to <clears throat> have to have that food, um, that meat being supplied in the grocery store at the same time. So we're really glad that processing plants are generally all open nearly at this point in time. Um, in the hog industry, um, there are uh, reduced capacities. They, we're hearing they're between 50 and 70 percent. But we're really pleased, and our members work closely with state and local health officials to make sure those workers are safe and healthy, and then keep those plants open. We just have to work on increasing capacity. Uh, the industry knows that's, that's a challenge at this point in time, but we feel like we're turning a corner in terms of getting these plants open. A lot of people don't realize all this work done by a State Department of Agriculture uh, <laughs> in various, uh, you know, inspections and uh, certifications and things like that are are the states doing okay as far as their workforce or staffing? Have they been impacted by COVID-19 in that way? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So, yes, your State Department of Ag uh, is a, reg- a co-regulator with the federal government on that whole range of, of programs, Mike. And it's been business as usual, and I would say business way beyond usual. And that has put a strain on, on the State Department of Ag and their staff teams. It's putting a strain on state budgets, as we've heard from the governors, 
and there there will be impact as we move forward. So there's a continuing need in into the future, not only for our state departments of ag, but obviously for farmers and ranchers. I think that's an issue or a, a point that we've not talked enough about. The state budgets that are in bad shape, some were in bad shape before this, but uh, now about everyone's state budget is going to be hard hit. So a lot of that funding that the ag departments have uh, relied on and continue to rely on to do their jobs and services, that's going to be uh, an even tighter, tougher situation. Yeah, absolutely. We have our eye on that, of course. Uh, We're we're monitoring uh, the trends, but I think there's going to be pressure on state uh, budgets and therefore on our, uh, our members as well. So it, it's a time when uh, agriculture shines. We do more with less. We always have. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to do that. But more than that, Mike, we need to look at what's, um, what is the future new normal. And so what, what have we learned from, from this process as states are reopening? What can we adopt that's improved our efficiencies and, and adds new innovation and new growth to agriculture? I think that's where we need to to pivot to as we try to reach a post-COVID agriculture. I talk about that a lot. Lessons learned from this crisis. I mean, if we Mm -hmm. learn and and not repeat mistakes, if we learn lessons, uh, I mean, it'll help us and guide us in in moving past uh, this crisis and into the future. And what we learn or don't learn or what we uh, observe and, and not ignore will greatly determine and influence where we go after this is over. There's no doubt about that. I mean, right now, um, using our existing resources, we're, we're sort of in triage for, for the needs mm-hmm. of our producers, but it's really a Band-Aid. So what we need to do now is um, just what you said. We need to look at the lessons learned. There have been huge improvements in regulatory efficiencies, things that um, maybe consumers don't see quickly, but We've improved uh, and even strengthened our partnership with USDA and FDA and EPA. We'll continue to do that. Uh, The effectiveness of Congress to bring resources to to agriculture is going to continuously be important because there are many unmet needs, and we really don't know what we don't know. (laughs) The one thing I do know, Mike, is that uh, State Departments of Ag are really ready to take on this these challenges for their ag communities. The president's move to cut more regulations or allow more regulations to be cut, will that impact agriculture in states across the country? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, The administration has had a focus of reducing regulations over the entire uh, term. Uh, His recent executive order to restate the same, I think will just continue us on the trend. Um, notwithstanding that agriculture is science-based, we're responsive to farmers and ranchers and what works in the field. That's job number one. But their regulations um, can be improved and enhanced, and that's the, his focus. And I, I, I know that there'll be a lot of enhancements for agriculture as well. Dr. Glenn, good to talk with you. Thank you for the update. Stay well, and I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Yes, thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Mm-hmm. Dr. Barb Glenn, CEO of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. All right, up next, we're going to talk with USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey. 
and try to get some answers to questions you may have on this uh, coronavirus food assistance program. How do they come up with the formula that they are using to determine how much money goes out? We'll talk payment limits, timing of payments, things like that. Coming up next, so stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Lots of questions about the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. And here to answer those questions is USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into this. Uh, How did you develop the formula that you're using to determine which commodities get payments and how much they'll get? Well, the original is to base uh, them on uh, the price. All of them need to show price reduction uh, to be able to be covered or or other losses in the case of specialty crops um, between January 15th and April 15th, recognizing that there is no perfect start and end date here, but the start date was uh, trying to look at um, a time before uh, coronavirus really was too much into the markets, and the end date needed to be done so that we could actually get the program and the rules done and be able to get sign-up started. Um, and so it may seem like a little while ago, but that's kind of the process of government here to be able to get uh, an end date as well. So we needed to see that loss, and then we had to measure kind of the the, the impact of that loss and be able to look at the the differences between commodities. We saw, obviously, cattle prices and hog prices drop precipitously. Uh, Certainly cotton did as well. We saw other commodities drop less than that. And then we recognize that some commodities, uh, you can have a loss even though you didn't sell, like for grain, uh, for cotton, uh, for wool. um, You may have saw your price drop and therefore decided not to sell so we base those more on an inventory loss where we looked at uh, livestock and specialty crops um, and, and milk uh, more on the actual drop that occurred uh, during those three months. Um, and, and certainly for livestock and, and specialty crops, looked at the actual sales made during those three months and, and if you were impacted by those sales, trying to cover that. So more commodities could be added if they can show loss. Is that correct? They can. Um, We know that we did not cover everything. We know that there's some differences within commodities as well. Um, And uh, so you may have uh, certainly heard from folks in the egg business. We've got a difference between shell eggs and liquid eggs. We've got... uh, uh, we did not include um, extra-long staple cotton. 
because we didn't have a price series that showed a price drop, but I think there's certainly going to be folks there that say that mirrored the other cotton prices. So as well as many commodities we don't have great information for, uh, from maple syrup to crawfish and other kinds of things, have stepped forward and said, we have some losses. We can show you um, why there was a price drop and exactly a price series that matters here. And it'll take a little bit of analysis for us to go through that. But we are going to get some input for other commodities as well. We're talking with USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey. A big question coming into this was how would you handle payment limits? Uh, why did you decide to leave them at 250000 well, we originally had it by commodity, 125,000 per commodity and uh, 250,000 overall. We left it at 250 in part to be because we have a, a broad range of commodities that we're covering. We did allow um, a, 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 an additional option for those that are organized as corporations. Um, and we have many of our folks uh, in livestock and in specialty crops that have not worked with USDA before, not worked with FSA before, that are organized as corporations. Traditionally, we just allow one payment limit per corporation, but we recognize in many cases there are several active family members within a corporation. Uh, so if uh, a member of that corporation, uh, a shareholder of that corporation, will certify that they're spending uh, at least 400 hours of management or or physical labor out on the farm, uh, then they can qualify for an additional payment limit up to uh, three payment limits for a corporation. Sign-up begins on Tuesday. What do the producers need to know about sign-up? So we will still be operating by, by phone call uh, and by email. Uh, certainly, uh, I think many of our folks know how to get a hold of an office. If they're new to FSA, they can look on our uh, farmers.gov website for where their local office may be and, and give a phone number there. We're also going to have ways that those phone numbers can roll over into others if those phones happen to be busy as well. I think a lot of folks will start at farmers.gov, and that's maybe the easiest place to start um, ahead of or on Tuesday morning, we'll have available um, a, a the actual form um, that that folks can go ahead and fill out. They can print out, they can fill out, uh, they can take a picture of it uh, after they sign it and send it in. Uh, I'm sure they'll want to talk to the office, make sure they have the right uh, address or email uh, to be able to do that. We'll also have a calculator there. In fact, right now they can go to um, the farmers.gov website, and it will show you a, 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 a connect you to a YouTube where you can look at what that calculator looks like, and basically a spreadsheet where it'll show you the numbers that you need to put in, um, and uh, so grain inventory or grain production in 2019, for example, um, shows you that it goes ahead and calculates the payment, and then how it creates. Uh, the actual application that you can print off, sign, uh, and get to an FSA office. Let's talk about the 80-20. 80% of the payment initially, 20% later if there's money available. Is that going to be dependent on other commodities becoming eligible? Will that take up that 20% payment? 
potentially so that wouldn't be there? Uh, we had set aside some money for the other commodities. We think we've got enough money for all commodities, uh, the way that this is structured. We all know that this doesn't cover all losses by any means in any of these commodities. But but the way that it's structured, we believe we have enough money that we'll be able to pay everybody 100%. But frankly, it's a little hard to predict. Um, specialty crops, we don't know exactly how much didn't leave a farm or how much didn't get paid for. Uh, we don't know exactly how many additional commodities will come in, but we think that we have the certainly the big dollar amounts for most commodities out there, and we don't even know how many folks will hit payment limits or how much inventory folks had on hand in January. Uh, we we know what 2019 grain production was, but we don't know what um, was at risk on a grain producer's operation in January. So recognizing there's some uncertainty and we want folks that uh, that come in later to be able to have an equal chance to be able to receive the full payment rate that others receive uh, we wanted to prorate it um, we may discover a month into the process we're going to have plenty of money we can go ahead and figure out and, and make that second payment it may take until the end before we realize whether we're going to have enough money uh, to be able to make the full uh, last 20% or not. Some questions about money going to be available this summer, other money that you will have. But is that already committed to other programs, or what? what's the status of that money? Well, the the $14 billion that was provided in the CARES Act to top up uh, the CCC um, will come available after uh, uh, July 1st. Um, we do have uh, a need for about that much money this fall for ARC PLC payments, for CRP rental payments, and then for our normal amount of marketing assistance loans that are made in September, October, and November. And we typically don't get that next top-up, year-end top-up until uh, at least December, uh, sometimes even into January. But $14 billion would about carry us through that. Uh, of course, Congress could do like they did last year. They could, they could say, we'll top you up before that and make another payment uh, that would allow us the flexibility to use some of that money for COVID response uh, right away. Or we could believe that they're going to do that and go ahead and use that. Um, there's obviously a conversation in the House right now, and I know a lot of senators as well, in talking about whether there ought to be additional money, whether CCC money or other Treasury funds provided, because they all recognize the loss is bigger than this $16 billion. And so how do we provide more help? And I think hopefully in the next few weeks we'll know whether there's additional dollars there or Congress will go ahead and message to us whether we should be using that 14 or not. Um, but we know the losses are greater than what's covered uh, by this package. But $16 billion is real money, um, but the losses are certainly even greater than that across the ag community. Bill, just a few seconds here real quick. What about animals being euthanized? Is there any money in there to cover that or and to help with uh, uh, you know, the composting, the handling and disposal of those animals? 
Uh, there is not specifically for that. If they're part of inventory on April 15th and they choose the date when those animals are in inventory, they may get an inventory payment, but that does not pay a full value. There's certainly some conversation about future support for that. And we do have some cost share from NRCS to be able to help uh, with disposal, but it's cost share. It does not cover all the costs. All right, Bill, really appreciate your time. Thank you for answering the questions, and uh, uh, stay well, take care. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey with some answers to questions on the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We continue to get reaction to the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Joining us now is the CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, Chandler Gould. Chandler, thank you for joining us. What's your uh, initial reaction to CFAP? I know you have some concerns about uh, when it comes to wheat. Yes, uh, thank you for letting me uh, inviting me onto your show today. And you know, to start off with CFAP, uh, you know, first thing that Nog would like to say is we do appreciate the administration's continued work to bring uh, relief to our wheat growers across the country due to the COVID pandemic. Unfortunately, the program that they've most recently rolled out is only allowing uh, two two of the six classes of wheat to be eligible: uh, Durham and our hard uh, red spring wheat, which only makes up about 30% of our wheat production. So immediately the program is, is neglecting to relieve uh, over 70% of the wheat growers here in the United States. And so that's a major concern to us, and we plan to work with the USDA to see if we can't make sure uh, and to get those other four classes qualified. We just heard from USDA Undersecretary Bill Northey that uh, they are open to including uh, more commodities uh, as they get more information. So I guess that's the process you'll be going through now, uh, verifying, documenting to USDA these other classes of wheat and the need there? Exactly. So we are already working with our 20-member state associations to demonstrate, and we've already got the, the data that, the volatility that we have seen in the wheat market from January through the end of April, all six classes of wheat saw a 10% or greater drop in price. But the problem, Mike, that we've got is, you know, the program looked at that very narrow window as the time slot, you know, to determine whether or not you were going to be eligible for CFAP. And due to panic buying, there was a slight uptick in the futures market for wheat. And so that is what has disqualified uh, so many of the classes of wheat. But unfortunately, that's a futures price that went up, and it immediately has come back down and is even lower than it was. And so we plan to put all of that information together as well as showing that the cash price and the basis has gotten has spread further apart in many of our local areas uh, and elevators, therefore hoping to be able to convince the USDA to allow all six classes of wheat in the U.S. to qualify for the program. Yeah, that's an interesting point. You saw that 
that initial boost for wheat in some in some categories, some classes. Uh, now that's almost coming back uh, to bite you. It's like uh, what looked like it was going to be something really good may hurt you in the long run. Exactly, and and you know, and we and I had a conversation with Under Secretary Nordy as well as Deputy Secretary Sinsky uh, while this program was being developed and pulled together. And you and I both know just because we had a a little bump in the futures price for two to three days does not mean that that money actually went back to any of my growers. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's a futures price. And the volatility that we've seen, not only because of the disruption of the trade with China, but of COVID, uh, we can definitely demonstrate economic harm to all six classes. And so we're going to be working with uh, uh, all 20 of our associations as well as the U.S. Wheat Associates and uh, plan to do a full court press to make sure that we not only represent all of the wheat growers, but make this strong case that they all need to be qualified. Chandler, give us an overview of how COVID-19 is impacting wheat growers right now. Well, you know, the main thing that we have continued to work on is to make sure that our supply chain continues to stay up and running. And I think a prime example that we can look at and learn from are our colleagues in the livestock sector where their where their processing plants have had, had so many uh, uh, illnesses. And, and so we're working very hard to make sure that, you know, with our millers and our bakers and our transportation system, uh, we've got wheat that's going to be har- starting to be harvested in the next couple weeks, you know, down in Texas and Oklahoma and, and slowly work its way all the way up to the Canadian border. Uh, we want to make sure that we've got the transportation systems in place and be able to continue with our export markets. Uh, 50% of the wheat in the U.S. is exported and 50% is consumed domestically. Um, and so we, we're, we're working to make sure that not only as we're bringing the winter wheat out, that we can also have the appropriate crop protection tools and and necessary things in place so that our spring wheat can go in. And so it's been a, it's been a major project. Staying on top of all of that, our team's done a great job working with Congress and the USDA, and we'll continue to reach out to our states for any of those little isolated individual problems that we can assist with. We talked about that early bump you saw in in some sales, at least on the futures market. What have you seen about demand through this? Well, you know the demand for flour. It, this is this is I have to make a little joke here if you don't mind, but you know we always have all these fad diets running around here. First it was Atkins, mm-hmm. and now we're all on this gluten free diet. But boy, you say pandemic, I know because you know I live here in Washington D.C. I went a month and couldn't find a bag of flour. So mm-hmm. demand for for flour and bread products and flour and flour uh, uh, wheat products has definitely gone uh, up and skyrocketed. You, uh, of course, I think as COVID and the panic buying has slowed down, we're seeing that demand come back more to its static uh, uh, area that it has been in the previous years. But I think it's just uh, good good for us to know that I think this gluten issue uh, seems to be only in good times. And and when we're having a severe Mm -hmm. issue out there, you can see that the demand for wheat products is very high. A lot of cooking and baking at home, right? That's right. You do. I mean, if you run around on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, I have seen more sourdough loaves since this started <laughs> than I have in any other year. So, you know, I'm glad to see that. That, and it's not just our farmers and ranchers. It, it, it's you know, urban consumers. I'm glad to see them uh, attempting and trying to increase their baking skills. It's clear that they realize that whole grains are a necessary part of a balanced diet. 
And hopefully this trend will continue and we'll be able to move beyond this fad diet of gluten-free. Uh, I feel sorry for the next commodity that they go and pick on, but uh, we, we've done with that. <laughs> Chandler, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time and the update. And stay well. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, Chandler Gould. Tomorrow, more reaction to CFAP. We'll talk to the American Soybean Association, National Pork Producers Council, and more on the ethanol industry from the American Coalition for Ethanol. Stay safe, everyone. Join us tomorrow on AOA. AOA.